see Matt with y'all a couple weeks ago. It was fun to have some lunch with you and, and spend some time together. I, I met a few of you for the first time this morning, and some of you uh, I, I met like 25 or 30 years ago. And uh, so it's fun to be among the company of friends. So we appreciate that. Well, we're going to talk to, uh, today about family. And uh, Matt, if you'll advance to the first slide, I want to introduce you to my family, okay? That's kind of an old picture. That picture was taken in 1905. This is called the Caton Clan. That was what was written on the back of the picture. It was called the Caton Clan. And this uh, was their farmhouse just north of Abilene, Texas, in Anson County. Uh, it's kind of an interesting picture, actually, if you think about it. Um, my grandfather is this gentleman, this uh, little boy with the hat in his hand. His name is William Otis Caton. And uh, again, in 1905, uh, it's kind of interesting to think about what the realities were of that day. So in 1905, like at their house, they didn't have running water, right? They didn't have any electricity, right? But sadly, more than anything, they had no internet access. <laughs> so how in the world did they survive in a world without Facebook and constant connectivity? You know, like, wow, how is that possible? But it's, it's, it's kind of a neat picture. I don't know if you can see this. Here is a, a horse and buggy, and the horse is still hitched up. That's kind of interesting. And uh, kind of odd. You think about how rural Anson County was in 1905, that there'd be a photographer that would arrive out here. But anybody, can you see what this is right here? You know how rare a bicycle was in 1905? Bicycles were invented in the mid-1800s, mostly in France, but they were not perfected until 1890. So in the 1890s, it was incredibly unusual for a family to have one bicycle. And it's surprising to me that this rural family, kind of a poor agricultural type family, had a bicycle in front of their house in 1905. Kind of interesting to think about. So what's, what's interesting in the context of that is that if you follow this little boy through his life, uh, in 19, he passed away in 1975. He went from this place to watching man walk on the moon. Isn't that incredible to think about? Isn't it amazing how much progress we've made in some ways? Because isn't it amazing how little progress we've made in other ways? I say that because uh, William Otis Caton was born in 1894. That's a really unique date. That decade between 1890 and 1900 was in the middle of what was called the Progressive Era. The Progressive Era was a season of incredible social upheaval. It was a time of social change. The Progressive Era followed the Gilded Age. That was the age of money getting. And that was the build-up of the railroads. And the first time we had fantastically wealthy people. The gold rush had happened during the Gilded Age. And there was a great sense of discontent, especially among women in the late 1800s, around double standards, around just the issues of families. And in the decade, that single ten year period between 1890 and 1900, there was a quadrupling of the divorce rate in our country. Our country went from one divorce filing per thousand population to four per thousand, quadrupling in a single decade. In fact, the newspaper writers of the day were writing that they felt like the, the, the demise of the family was imminent. Isn't it amazing all the ways that we have made progress? Well, just think about it. They think within a year we're going to have space to room. 
that uh, that uh, self-driving cars, you know, are just right right on the corner. Artificial intelligence is changing everything, and yet the family itself is that social space that is struggling deeply. The the thing that's really most important to us as human beings, right, is the thing that's in the in the biggest disarray. Well, you know, uh, as I think about that in, in this family, if you'll notice, it, it, this is kind of an interesting picture. I thought people kind of got close together when they were taking a picture, right? <laughs> and this guy, like, look at him. You can see his face. He's like, man, I was just getting ready to ride a bike, and the photographer shows up. You know, it's, but you know, in a way, that's kind of representative of my family. Because this, this, this man, actually his dad, uh, Thomas, was a very broken, very disconnected man. And William Otis became a very broken, very disconnected man. And my dad became a very broken, very disconnected man. And I started my life as a very broken, very disconnected man. Isn't it amazing how much progress we've made in some ways and other, other ways uh, we have. What does Jesus think about that? What, what was his family like? What was Jesus' family like? Where, okay, let me ask you this question. Where do you see a snapshot of Jesus' family? 42 generations on one page. Right. What do we call that? Yeah. You ever looked at any of those names? Are any surprises in any of those names? What's one name that surprises you? Ah. Yeah. Rain. Can we talk about that? It's lunch. interesting that Jesus allows that to be his family? You know, it, and what's really amazing, if you look, if you go back and if you look at those names as a list, and then go find them in 2 Chronicles to start following them, like David, okay, man after God's own heart, murdered a guy, hey, you know, that's alright. <laughs> Solomon, what was his family like? How many wives did he have? 700, 300 concubines, is that it? That was the beginning of the blended family movement. <laughs> Solomon, you know, and so so think about, okay, but I want you to think about this in the context of the faith of this family. What's going on? So the next guy on the list is King Rehoboam. It says he did evil because he had not set his heart on seeking the Lord. So let's let's do a chart. The faith of the family is declining. Okay? King Asa the king. He did right what was in the eyes of the Lord. He thinks they're getting better for Jesus' family. It's looking good. Okay. Jehoshaphat. It's, it's two generations of faithfulness. Can you believe that? Let me flip over here. Uh, Je gosh, Jehoshaphat. He's still doing good. Jehoram. Uh-oh. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. We're fell off the cliff again. Things are going down for the family. I don't know what we're going to do about Jesus' family here. Uzziah. Started well, ended poorly. Okay. That wasn't a great thing. King Jotham of Judah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Things are going good until Papa Ahaz. King Ahaz. Anybody know anything about him? I'll just read a little bit. Uh, he burned sacrifices in the valley. He sacrificed his sons on the fire. Would you like to be a part of that family reunion? <laughs> Would you like to go to Papa Ahaz's house for a family reunion? Let's sit in the backyard and that's your pole. Kids, look away! <laughs> He was a wicked man. And uh, goodness, Hezekiah did well. Things are going good for the faith of Jesus' family. Things are going good. 
uh, Manasseh, uh, Amon, things going down. Josiah, the boy king, things are going good. You, you see what Jesus' family looks like? This is what his family looks like through the generations from a faith. It looks like this, doesn't it? That's kind of like my family. Anybody else's family look kind of like that? What's the story of your family? Let me ask you this. Is, is, your, is your family this great story of godly men, incredible progress, every generation standing on the shoulders of the Father, just better, 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 better? <coughs> Mine is like, Mine's kind of like, yeah, five generations. Ooh. What do you think Jesus thinks about that? Anybody, anybody know the story of their family really well? Generationally, think about what God is doing through the generations. Anybody know that? All right, I'm going to use a little illustration here. This is, a, I want you to think about this as a timeline, okay? So this is a timeline, and this is, this is a, we're going to kind of plot the timeline of, of my family. And this little green spot on the rope is, this is my generation. This is me, okay? And then the knots represent different generations. So if I go back to my dad and to my grandfather and my great-grandfather and my great-great-grandfather. So, you know, what, what was he like? Well, my great-great-grandfather was a guy named Drew. He was a uh, tobacco farmer and moonshiner in North Carolina. And then his son was Thomas. Uh, Thomas's house burned down when he was a kid. He walked to Arkansas, ended up in Anson County eventually. Um, very, very broken man. His son was William, the, the guy right in the, that was in the picture, William Otis Caden. He was a uh, traveling salesman in Waco, Texas. And his son was my dad, Ralph. My dad was a district judge in Vicksburg. And then it's me, Carl, and then my son, Chad, and then two weeks ago, we got Grayson. Pretty cool, huh? So if you think about what's going on in your family through generations, you know, people when they think that, they typically present it just like I did. Or at least men, we kind of typically talk about what do you do, right, for a living. That's not the most important thing going on in his life, is it? Think about your family in the context of the faith of your family. So if I think about the faith of my family, if I think about Drew and Thomas, and William and Ralph, there's not a single man of faith in that family. In fact, when I told my dad that I was following Christ, he um, responded in profanities. He didn't want to see that happen. And uh, so, what do you think Jesus wants to do in this generation? What do you think he wants to do with that? He wants Kelly and I to be the transitional generation. What does that mean? Right. Change the narrative, right? And so he, Jesus, Jesus thinks, God thinks generationally, doesn't he? He's, this is how we live our lives, like this, right? And this is the way Jesus looks at our life, right? He sees it all. How do you think, what do you think God wants to do through that? He wants us to be this transitional generation. Moving from generational brokenness to generational faithfulness. Breaking the chains. Anybody else? Do you, how many of you here have heard about the transitional generation before? Have you heard that term before? Just raise your hand if you've heard of the transitional generation. 
Anybody see themselves? Anybody in that space where God's using you? What's that like? What was that like to you? Yeah. Why has that pressure? Well, because you want to do it right. You see what's coming for you. It's so messed up and you want to do everything different than that. Right. So it's easy to change. It's somewhat easy to do that for yourself. But then when you have kids, right. that's the thing like, I have to make sure that this continues. And then my kids love Jesus. And, um, so it can be, it can be difficult. We shouldn't put that pressure on ourselves. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it's a tricky balance because I think you, you look back and you see the brokenness and the fight the things you don't want to pass on, but you also want to understand the seed for that. Say the what? The seed of the that seed, brokenness. Yeah. Okay. And that's what you want out. It's not like I want to do things with my mom did or my grandmother did. Right. It's like what was the seed? The underlying mm-hmm. thing? How was the enemy working mm. to disrupt? Anybody else? Redeem and restore the family. 
in our community by His power for His glory. The thing I like about that statement doesn't say anything about me. It's about what God is doing. And Kelly and I, my wife and I, we've seen God do amazing things. Not because we knew what to do or how to do it, but just because we walked with Him on a daily basis. Yes, ma'am. Government. Who would even pay attention to government? 
everything happened, government happened inside of families. But, it, but they, they call those trustee families, very, very strong families that, that don't allow for individual expression. And so in the 1400s, we began to move in what the centerpiece is called the domestic family era. And that is when there is a little bit more expression of individuality. <coughs> families are very strong. Because families are the strong component of our community. Families are where our values and virtues come from, right? Values and virtues flow, well, this is what researchers say, primarily through patterns of our uh, values flow primarily through lines of affection, primarily families. All our values and virtues are created in families. That's why it's so important to have strong families. A strong families create strong culture. Strong cultures create strong governments. But it's interesting, we're at the far end of that. So it's really, really hard to raise a family in this culture. And then if you come out of a family that's incredibly broken, then you got a whole new set of problems. Well, let me tell you what. If you're, if you're, I think we're all in a little bit of this transitional generation, right? We're all, because we all have strengths in our family, don't we? Right? We all have weaknesses in our family. And so when you think about what it is that we're called to do today, it is, I think we're called to be honest about the past, okay? I think we're called to be diligent in the present. I think we're called to be hopeful of the future. Honest about the past, diligent in the present, hopeful of the future. What do I mean by that? What does it mean to be honest about the past? Well, that's a balance. Such a tricky balance, isn't it? Because, like, you ever know anybody that just kind of lives in the past? They just take root, take up residence there? It's like you can't draw them out of the past? On the other hand, you know anybody that ignores the past? I think the key is this. I think um, we, to be honest about the past is to find this balance where you can avoid dwelling on the past but still be open to how the past can be instructed, right? Let me give you some examples. Is, uh, let me just start with strengths first. So I come, my family has some amazing strengths. My family is a family of incredible stewardship. Our, our family, Corey knows this, our family has never lived on half of our income ever. We're just, my dad drove the junkiest cars imaginable. He was a district judge, and he'd drive up to the courthouse in his old jalopy, and I took that on, and I didn't have an airbag in the car until five years ago. You know, and our family's just really, really good stewards of money. When I was like eight years old, I remember standing at the desk, about this high on the desk, my mom, she was a Baylor graduate. Well, let me tell you something about mutual funds. Mutual funds are good stocks. Mutual funds are this and that. This is what stocks do. You can buy stocks, you can sell stocks. You know, I just, that's eight years old. That's just so natural. It's an incredible strength. So Kelly and I walked into a family like, man, we were out debt for you. I mean, that's just, that's just the way we, our family operates. That's an incredible strength, right? And, but we all have weaknesses. One of the weaknesses in our family is like alcoholism, right? My dad was a raging alcoholic. It was incredible. Let me tell you another crazy intersection in our story. So my dad is presiding over this divorce case in 1971, Howard County Courthouse. Uh, all morning long, there's a giant custody battle with the kids. Uh, he decides that neither parent is ideal for custody. Calls, calls a, a lunch recess, comes back, brings the kids back into his office. <coughs> And the girl was my wife. Her family is, is just telling me. 
My wife is the only person in her family that's going to get divorced. That's kind of a crazy intersection. Fast forward 10 years, my dad's my best man. My wife is right here. She's my high school sweetheart. Father-in-law is right there. He decided against him. <laughs> what a mess. But you know, God can work with that, can he? Can he not work with that? You know, we, let's talk about alcoholism. Let me tell you this. Um, broken people marry broken people, right? So both my wife and I had blind spots around alcoholism. So at my house at 7 o'clock, you better leave. You won't come back till 10. My dad was an angry alcoholic. Her dad was a passive alcoholic. So I got involved in her family. It's like, well, this is a better version, right? <coughs> because we both had blind spots with that. So let me ask you this. To be honest about the past is to find things that are instructive. I needed to share with my son. Chad, buddy, I love you. You're an awesome young man. You need to stay away from alcohol. You're seven times more likely to be an alcoholic, right? Is that important to say those kind of things? It sure is. We need to be honest about the past. Absolutely. But we also need to be diligent in the present. What do I mean by that? You know, uh, like I said before, we, the way we live our lives, it's a crazy life we live. We, we just, we have our heads down. This is the way we, most of us live our lives. Well, you know, this is where I'm going to go to school, this is where I'm going to go to college, I'm going to get a job here, and our, we're just so focused on this, right? And we really need to be focused on this. I know people that are living bucketless lives. And what I call, look, I'm not being critical of this idea of bucket list. It's a great movie, cool idea. But a lot of people are living like that. By the time they get here, everything is over. You no, know, when you get right here, that's when the good stuff begins, right? Because how long is eternity? How long are we going to celebrate all these things? You know, I, I used to do this a lot with men's ministry. And I would stretch this rope out like 100 feet. And, uh, oh, it's getting hooked up on that. And, uh, and I'd ask them to go to the end of the rope. And then they stand way down there. And I'd say, look back. And what do you see from out there? You know what they said more than anything? I can already see it. We need to be living our lives diligently. Living every day in light of eternity, right? Because this is where the good stuff begins. It doesn't mean we'll have balance in our lives. It doesn't mean we enjoy certain things. This bucket list mentality is like, well, if we don't get it all in before here, it's all over, baby, right? Then how we can live our lives. And when you're thinking generationally what God thinks, that's not how God thinks. He's looking at your family. He's, he's looking at your family. What's the meta-narrative of your family? What's the big overarching story? That's what you work on all the time, right? The big story. The big story is that God is doing an incredibly redemptive work in our family where we're going to transition from brokenness to faithfulness at some level, not perfectly, at some level. It's going to change the course of our family. So we need to be diligent in the present, but we also have to be hopeful of the future. And to, you know, really to be hopeful of the future is really... Um, you know, you, you and your spouse are the family leadership team of your family, right? You ever think about it in that context? And you need, you need to be communicating to your family where your family has been, where your family is, and where your family is going. 
You need to have a generational understanding of what's going on in your family, and you need to be able to com communicate that in a compelling way to your kids. And, you know, when my daughter left home, I told her, I said, Brooke, you are the most amazing young woman. You are the first person to lead this family with a rock-solid faith in five generations. You see how she saw her life differently? That's a very compelling vision of what it's about. And it's so funny because, I mean, this is how we talk in our household. What are your gifts? How is God using your gifts? What is God going to do through that? And Brooke, and we, we, with our kids, we talked about what's our family mission? What's the big overarching mission of, of our family? How do each of us contribute to that mission? And then how, is, how could God possibly use that in the future? And, uh, and so I encouraged my kids to journal. My son didn't journal really well, but my daughter journaled really well. And so, you know, part of her mission is like, who's she going to share this mission with? Well, that's going to be her husband. So she started writing out, you know, what he might be like. And we had some funny experiences around that. Like, she met this young boy at our school. His name was Drew. And she went out with him twice and just dumped him. Brooke, I said, Drew is a nice young man, you know? What's the deal? She goes, she was like, Dad, he's not the young man for me. You know, she's like, why, why would I keep dating him? Because he's not the young man I'm going to marry. You know, God's doing a great work in our life, right? Isn't he? <laughs> like, okay, you're right. And my daughter, Tori, knows my son-in-law, amazing young man. Their church funding problems as a couple. They have this compelling vision of who they are as a family. So what's that like? How can you how can you share the, the big picture vision of what God's been doing, what he's doing now, and what he might do in the future? What's that look like to your family? You know, uh, I talk to a lot of men, most of the times I share this, I share this around men's Bible studies. And you know what's the most statistically the most challenging year of a man's life is age 46. Because men typically have three seasons of their life. Adventure, mastery, and legacy. Adventure is that young season where you're out to really just you know, do crazy things. My son and his wife live at the entrance of the Olympic National Forest. And he, want, he thinks a great idea is for them to buy a camper and live out there, right? And he's always hiking and motorcycling and he's on his 24th dirt bike and you know. And then as a man gets older, he starts getting involved in you know what his vocation is. And mastery is a big deal for me. I was a home builder. I wanted to build the best homes and the finest homes, right? But around age, around age 46, a guy looks up from here and goes, Whoa, you gotta do something way bigger than that. Not all men make that point. And he goes, wow, you know, I really want to have a legacy. I want to be a part of what God's doing in our family generation. Is legacy something y'all talk about? What, what do you think about when you think of legacy? The term legacy has been really hijacked by the financial industry, right? Because it's a very compelling idea. Anybody know the, the, the future legacy of what your family might be? Anybody want to share that, what that might be like? I was talking to Jonathan earlier, and, and he's, you've got a compelling story about what God's been doing in your family. 
great to share about the legacy because I'm just trusting God for the future. <laughs> There's a, a really um, when you think about being diligent and present, you know I think one of the things we have to be we have to be uh, realistic about is if a family's been going the wrong direction for five generations, how much energy is that going to take? Yeah, I, I can't share something. Okay. Getting the point you're trying to do here, thinking the other line. So about three weeks ago during spring break, I had. My three children, their spouses, and grandchildren. And um, so we were all together, and I had everybody get together for a little Bible study. So what I did was I shared, I, and I focused it on grandkids. But what I shared was that back in the 1990s, I prayed for their dad or for their mom while they were so young. Mm. And I said, what I prayed for was that God would lead them to the right person to marry. And then I prayed for all of you. And I said, here we are. Mm. And we prayed that back, I prayed that back in the 1990s regularly. And then I told them, not only did I pray for you before I even met you, but I have already prayed for the people that you will marry and the children that you will have. And uh, then I said, and then that's as far as I can go mentally. <laughs> that's about as far out as I can project. <laughs> I love that. You know, because everybody in this room, I think, yeah, everybody in this room is the person in the family that really needs to be thinking generationally and really needs to be communicating that. Look, our kids when they're younger, they're just not there yet, right? They're not ready for that. And they're in the busy different seasons of their life. But there, there's a fascinating science around how vision is imparted. Vision is imparted in three ways. Number one, by the stories you tell, because people can quote, see themselves in the story, right? The way you live your life, and the experiences that you give your kids. Because the way humans develop is we develop a head knowledge, right? We all know what's right, where, where we should be going. But that has to be translated into heart knowledge. When you give kids experiences, either through story or the way you live your life, or the experiences you allow them to get, it allows that head knowledge to be translated into heart knowledge. That's why it develops strongly held convictions. You ever know anybody that went on a mission trip and they came back to different people? It's because they had what's called scientists call it first-hand experience. It's the most powerful way to impart vision. And if you think about those three ways of imparting vision, we need to become the storytellers of our family, right? We need to process what's happened in our family and communicate that back in appropriate doses. <laughs> My wife often says, you don't have to go into that much detail. <laughs> appropriate amount at the appropriate time. And then you, you need to... You need to live it out in front of them. This is, you know what the scientists call this? called it vicarious experience. If you live your life for Christ, if you give up your life for Christ and live your life in a sacrificial way, that is such a compelling vision. There is no way in this world the kids are not going to follow that. You know why kids are not following their parents in their faith? Because it's not very compelling. 
Why do kids not want to be married these days? Because marriage doesn't look that great. Right? Can we just be honest? By curious experience. Are you talking much about your own marriage? Have you ever told your kids what it was like when you first met? You ever told them about something that went wrong in an appropriate way? You ever told them about how God redeemed that? What you learned from that? When your kids see you living this out in front of you, that is such a beautiful, compelling vision. There's, there's this gentleman in my life named Brother Billy. Brother Billy um, was, uh, he was an army ranger and went into black ops kind of disappeared off the planet, came back, um, retired, and uh, was thinking about living this incredible life in Christ. His wife got ill, took care of his wife until she passed. Brother Billy said, uh, he lives here in San Antonio, he said, I decided to put boots on the ground the most dangerous place on the planet. I moved south today. And he operates medical tents in, the, in that war zone. He's like, Carl, I'm 76 years old. What difference does it make if I get shot? <laughs> and he's got all these great stories. When he comes back from Sudan and tells his grandkids these stories, you think that's a compelling life? I'm not saying we all move to Africa, right? You can live a compelling life right here in your own area, can't you? I wanted to read to you, as I close here, some words from uh, John Stanley. John Stanley says this. He says, The traditional family is the cradle of civilization. It's the first cell in the organism of human society. It's the most basic building block of communities, neighborhoods, and the myriad of ways that people affiliate with each other. You know, family is, is the most valuable and also the most vulnerable part of our community. It's because it's where, it's where values and virtues and future leaders come from. You know, one of our founding fathers said this. He said, if men were angels, no government would be necessary. But what I like even better than that is what John Adams said. John Adams said, the Constitution was created for a moral and religious people and is wholly inadequate for the governments of any other. Why is that? It's because you can only govern if the people are governable. And the people will be governable if they live within values and virtues and vision that our country has been founded on, right? There's no part of our society that's more important than family. And there's no part of our society that's struggling more deeply. You know, we, we need godly men in, in Washington, D.C., but more than anything, we need godly men and women right here in our own community. Because this is really how we change the culture. You want a revival in our culture? You want a revival in the church? You've got to have a revival in the community. Can we pray? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for the marvelous ways that you're in work in our lives. And Lord, just through, when we think back in each of our family situations, just through the pain, challenges, but also the strengths and the great joys you bring us through family. Thank you, God, that as you set the stage for your creation and as you created the heavens and earth and everything in it, and as you took a breath and took a day off to, to celebrate on that seventh day, and as you 
began your work, and the first thing you created was a marriage and a family. We thank you for that, Lord. Help remind us of how important it is to us. Lord, heal the pain that comes from the family, uh, our family backgrounds. And Lord, call us in to your great work. As we said before, this work just seems to be overwhelming. There seems to be much, so much stress around it. And yet, Lord, let us release it to you because it is you that desires to redeem and restore our families. And it's for your power and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much, Carlos. Give Carl, please.